Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Colossians chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would... Bless us richly through your word. Father, that you would give us your spirit, that we would understand. In understanding your word, we would apply it and live it to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So several years ago, this was a long time ago now, I... I played on a church softball league. And um, the league was to be, you know, friendly competition between Christians. I remember the coach of the team saying his goal is to be the godliest team in competition. The coach's desire sounded great to me as a pastor, but as a competitor, I thought it was a, a bit weak. Right, It fell a bit short. So when I was out there in the outfield watching the opposing team simply take pitches for walks, 
in soft, slow-pitch softball. Instead of swinging, and, you know, and after I had grounded into like four outs, I started getting caught up in the competition, right? Um, resonating through my mind, thankfully, were these verses, you know, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Um, I, think my, uh, I think my thoughts were definitely set on the things of the earth, and my blood pressure was rising, and my anger toward the other team was getting the most of me. I found myself wanting to yell things from the outfield at all their batters, and I probably did a few times, but um, they, they were subtle things. They weren't um, insanely angry, I guess. But my heart was anger. And you may, you may think this is a stupid example, but I think it's common. It's simply the mundane it's a mundane example, but an example where all of us live, right? It's an everyday example, and the mundane, the, the not unusual, fills our days and must be brought under Christ's lordship. Every moment brought under Christ's lordship. And so you, you can judge me for being angry at a, soft, a church softball league game, um, but think for a moment about your week. Right, think for a moment about your week. You were angry with your spouse for the way your breakfast tasted this morning. Right? Or you could have been. You blew up at your kids for the toy that you stepped on. Right? Especially if it was a Lego. Right? You you were frustrated at your husband for leaving the gas tank empty. Right? You were sent into an emotional conniption for the phone call you did not receive from a friend. Right? So somebody was supposed to call me or text me and didn't. Right? You were despising your parents' children for not letting you do this or that with your friends. You cursed your boss's name for holding you accountable in the job he's supposed to hold you accountable for. The passage we're going to look at this morning gives us the help we need in living through those sorts of moments with an eternal perspective in mind. There. There's that saying, he's too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, but that's obviously wrong. This passage tells us to put our minds above on the heavens, above on Christ, and then we'll be useful for every task under the sun. Right? The context of this passage in Colossians is this. Paul is responding to those who are calling for a strict type of living. Right? He's, he's dealing with those who are being really scrupulous about a strict type of living. Paul has said that these things are nothing. Right? The, the um, harsh treatment of the body and the um, eating certain foods and do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And um, so I can imagine after that as critics are responding with this question, so Paul, what in the world are we supposed to do? Right? If we're not to give ourselves over to those sorts of things, then what are we to do? What exactly do would you have us do? In chapter 3, Paul tells us what to do instead of those things, those um, purely outward acts and following the traditions of men. And so first of all, notice that Paul says there must be one fundamental thing that is reality. He writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Right? To be raised with Christ means to have been raised up with him, in union with him, in his resurrection. Right? When we were born again by the Spirit, 
and converted and put our trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, we are united to Christ and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. We become citizens of heaven and strangers on the earth. Notice in verse 3 and 4 that Paul tells us more about what we are if we are in Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so our life becomes hidden with Christ in God like a safe deposit box inside an impenetrable safe. Our life becomes hidden within God. Our life becomes completely secure, completely hidden from the schemes of the world and of the devil, completely safe. And when Christ is then revealed in glory, we're going to be revealed with him. And we will be like him. By implication, Paul is then saying in the first verse that if you have not been raised up with Christ, there is no possible way that you will be able to seek the things above. You will not seek the things above. Paul in the book of Romans writes that the mind set on the flesh is death. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, if you have not been raised up with Christ, your mind is by nature, is every moment of every day set on the things of the earth. That's all you can think about. You spend your time trying to figure out how you can please your flesh, how to make yourself happy, how to please your urges, right? How to gratify your urges, how to please your emotions, how to, how to, how to please your body and all of its desires. You spend no time trying to figure out how to please God. You will always do what serves yourself best and you will never do what pleases God if you have not been raised up in Christ Jesus. If there is an opportunity to cheat on a test and get away with it, you will not worry about God's desire for you to be honest if you're not raised up with Christ. If there's an opportunity to gossip behind somebody's back, you will not worry about the fact that God, God's word teaches that gossip is malicious. If there's an opportunity to win an argument, you will not worry that God calls wives to submit to their husbands. right? If there's an opportunity to prosper financially, you're not going to worry about the fact that God hates lying and stealing. If there's an opportunity to be free of the burden of ailing parents, you will not worry that God desires children to care for their parents and that he loves life. Right? In other words, if you have not been raised up with Christ, your God is yourself and your mind is unable to be set on the things above. Your mind is stuck on this earth. If you believe this is true of you, if you do not discern thoughts of God in your life, right? I urge you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Take Christ's yoke upon yourself, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The passage from verses 5 to 17 goes on to work out um, the difference between what it looks like to have your mind set on 
the things that are above and what, um, what it means to have the mind set on the things that are on earth. So what does it look like to have the mind set on things that are on earth? Paul is not afraid to give concrete examples of just exactly what the mindset on the earth will look, uh, will think, and do. Uh, the earth-fixated mind desires sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's verse 5. The mind fixed on the earth is angry, it's wrathful, it's malicious, it's slanderous, and spews forth obscene language, verse 8. The earthly mind loves to lie, verse 9, imitating Satan, who is the father of lies. What do all these things have in common? Every word and deed that is done is done to gratify the self. It's self-centeredness, right? This makes sense. If God is not your God, you will be your own God. And you will obey that God, even if it's yourself. As I was thinking through the passage, I began, you know, you, you can read these commands as, um, as indicatives, right? Not as things that we are to do, but things that have been accomplished or, or describe us. For example, if we make these, th- these, these um, if, if we think of the passage in this way, verse 1 is, if then you have been raised with Christ, you will seek the things that are above. Right? Or skipping down a bit to verse 2, you have set your mind on the things that are above. Or verse 5, you have put to death what is earthly. Verse 8, you have put all these away, anger, wrath, etc. Verse 12, you have put on compassion, kindness, humility, etc. And so why did I do this? Because we have a tendency to think that once we are in Christ, once we believe, once we have been united to Christ, the striving is done. Right? That there is no more striving, and in fact, to strive is to be a legalist. And that's, that's foolishness. That's antinomian, and it's wicked. Right? Of course, in one sense, it is true. We are no longer in bondage to sin and Satan. Before we were in Christ, we, were, we did not strive against sin. We simply followed its lead. But now its reign has been done away with. Now that we are in Christ and we have the power of the Holy Spirit... We have not only the command to strive against sin, but the real ability to overcome it. The real ability to overcome it. That's what some of you don't believe. We didn't do any fighting against sin before coming to Christ. Now we fight because we actually have the tools to fight. The, fight, the only fighting we did before believing in Jesus was striving against God himself. Right Until we are made completely new in Christ's presence, the way we glorify God is striving against our sin, to deny the flesh, to take up our crosses, to do that, to, to, to do that which goes against our sinful nature. This is the way we glorify God. Striving to live in a way that glorifies Him. This striving is not working for our salvation. It is, as Paul puts it elsewhere, working out our salvation. It is proving our salvation. Now, there are indicatives, things that we are in the passage, and these are very important because they establish that God has done the work we couldn't do. Some of the indicatives are this. You have died and your life is hidden 
with Christ in God, verse 3. You will appear with him in glory, verse 4. You have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed, verse 9. And a very important one, you are God's chosen ones, verse 12. These verses establish who we are in Christ, but this does not forbid the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself from making commands, giving us imperatives for our growth in him. In fact, it's only because of these wonderful things, God's choosing of us, that we are able actually to do anything beyond that, any killing of sin. This we do by the power God supplies to us. And this passage makes it quite clear that we must apply ourselves to this with every ounce of our energy. Again, the, the battle is on. The battle is on, and God tells us to kill our sin. And he's given us nothing less than the Holy Spirit. The scripture nowhere allows us to claim the promises of God without taking up the commands of God. Right? So how do we fix our mind on the things that are above? Our passage tells us to first of all put to death what is earthly and secondly to put on that which is heavenly. First in verses 5 through 9 we are told to put to death that what is earthly in you, then it goes on to list what is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Get rid of those things. This verse is where we get the word mortify or mortification. We are to put to death these sins that continue to reign in us. How do we put these particular sins or temptations to death? How do we do that? Is it like an object that that we can just stick a knife into and kill it? We don't give them the fuel. We don't give those passions, those lusts, the fuel they need to continue to rule us. If sexual immorality is a sin you fall into, the scripture tells you to do all that you can to put to death that temptation. Where do you fall into this sin? What feeds this desire? Certainly, pornography is all about images, so get rid of images, right? Does the television fuel your desire for something more hardcore? Get rid of the TV, right? When it comes to sin, Scripture is quite clear on the extreme actions that we should take, right? Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Of course, I'm supposed to get all allegorical about that. I'm supposed to make that not about the fight against sin, right? It's supposed to be about, I don't even know where redemptive historical guys go there, but to me it seems like he's talking about not going to hell because you're sinning. Here in Colossians, we are told to kill what is earthly in us, to be violent against those things that draw our minds away from God and the things that are ab- and, and off of the things that are above, to choke the life out of temptation, right? This is, the, this is a rule that might be helpful as you consider what earthly things you must kill in yourself. If you love money, kill this sin by doing the exact opposite of hoarding. Be generous. Give your money away. Get rid of it so that it's not a temptation to you, right? Be generous. Give it away. Ask the Lord to change your heart as you do this for a time You may have to force yourself to practice this, but after a time, you'll find that God has worked in your heart generosity. Right? And then you'll just, then you'll be 
then people will be telling you, like, man, you should probably save some money and pay some of your bills. You should be a little more prudent. You know, but what a wonderful thing it would go from being a greedy man to being a, a, a man who's foolish with his money. Right? If outbursts of profanity is your sin, kill this sin by consciously speaking words of encouragement. Your earthly pride will want to stop your mouth, but pray that God gives you the grace to overcome this sin. If lying is a sin of yours, be quick not to hide things or twist the truth, but to communicate the obvious reality of the situation, even when it hurts you, even when it's to your own detriment, right? Your honesty will please God. It will please God. Whatever our sins might be, we're told here to kill them, to suppress them as you would weeds which spread around and destroy everything that's about them. If we do not kill them, they kill us. As Paul says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Notice in verse 7, that Paul says this to the Colossian Christians, and these, these sins, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Right? In other words, you and I once lived in the domain of these sins. They controlled us, but now with the help of God and his Holy Spirit, we no longer walk in them and live in them. Now we are controlled. We we're not controlled by them, but we do occasionally visit them, right? We don't live there. We just visit on occasion. We're called to stop that visitation, stop even that flirting with sin, this visiting of the life of the old man. Paul says, but now you must put them all away. Engaging in this fight is the first way we are to set our minds on the things above. We are to kill what is earthly in us, Honestly, I don't think we do a good job at this. I don't take the time to do this. Do you take the time to do this? And I don't have a sense often that there's a battle raging around me and that God would be pleased if I actually got down to fighting every once in a while. Right? And that I actually prayed and asked him to help me fight. We come, we come to accept our sins. But we can't. We must engage in this fight. Push the sword of generosity through the sin of your greed and covetousness. Push the sword of kindness and humility through the sin of anger. Push the sword of purity through, this, through your sexual immorality. Push the sword of honesty through the sin of lying. Push the sword of encouragement through the sin of obscene talk. All these ways we, just, we need to use godliness as a weapon against sin. And it's all to the glory of God. In essence, this is what Paul tells us to do in the next positive command, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, above all, will be the greatest weapon against everything that attempts to draw our minds 
onto the earthly and away from the heavenly. Kill what is earthly, but don't stop there. Put on what is heavenly. Right? So Paul has told us these things that will ensure the fixing of our mind on the things above. First, put to death that which is earthly. Second, replace with the earthly with the heavenly. The next thing we do in order to fix our mind on the things above is in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I find it interesting that Paul associates the peace that comes from God with prayer. When we pray and present our requests to God, right, peace should be the logical outcome if we believe prayer does anything. If we have a sense that the sovereign God hears and answers prayer, we may take the stickiest situation, right? Whether it's, it's business, whether it's a moral dilemma, whether it's a huge decision that needs to be made, we can take the stickiest situation, present our request to God, and sit back and relax and see what God will do. God's peace will guard our hearts, which want to worry, and our minds, which want to worry, So the way for us to fix our minds on the things that are above is to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Next, we fix our minds on the things that are above by being thankful. Paul writes in verse 15, and be thankful. It's interesting to me how many times, I mean, it's every book that it seems that Paul writes about thankfulness, thanksgiving being at the core of what Christians are to do. We should be a thankful people. To be thankful is to acknowledge that every good gift we have comes directly from God himself. If we are not thanking God for his provision, not just the material things and friends and children and happiness, but salvation and a pleasure-filled, you know, sin-conquered eternal life, we don't understand the glory of what we have. If we are not thankful, it's clear we don't have our minds set on things above. What is above is Jesus Christ and the wounds he bears on his body for the sins of the world. Right? What is above is Jesus Christ who is interceding on behalf of his people, on behalf of you. What is above is Jesus Christ who is preparing a glorious, eternal dwelling place for his bride, the church. If these things don't make us cry out, praise God, thank you, Lord, continually... We clearly need the exhortation we're receiving from this passage this morning. We haven't got our minds in the right place. We should be thankful because we realize there is very little we have done in our own strength other than go after sin. So we cry out, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And we contemplate the riches and inheritance that await us. If you're not thankful and find yourself grumbling about this or that, job or this or that person or situation, you have not got your mind set on things above. In order to set our mind on the things that are above, we have to kill the earthly and put on the heavenly, right? And where, and obviously we have to give ourselves 
right? Verse 16 to the word of God. If we're not reminding ourselves continually, it's not like you aren't being taught elsewhere. So many people and so many things and so many devices are giving you messages to fill your mind that if you're not inputting the word of God, you will be fixing your mind on earth. We learn that knowing the word of God will help us fix our minds on what above. This should be just blatantly obvious. If God has written a book that reveals himself to us, it goes without saying that knowing that book would probably be a help to us, right? Help to our minds, help to us focusing on the right things. But are you searching them with a hunger to know him? Are you searching the scriptures? Do you have a sense that when you open the Bible that this study will help you leave the world behind and look to Jesus Christ? The Word of God is not like other books. Here is how it's described. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? The Word of God is powerful. It is able to judge your thoughts. It's, it, it, it's able to explain to you the intentions of your heart. Right? It's powerful. And Paul tells us that the, the way we set our mind on things above is to let it dwell in our hearts richly. The Word of God should dwell in our hearts like a thick, like a thick vein of gold through a mountain. Right? How do we make this happen? Well, I'll say it again. And I'll say this every week, probably. I mean, it's one of the applications you can make every week. Read it. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Show of hands for everybody who... No. Memorize it. Study it. Talk about it. Carry it with you at all times. Crave for it when it's preached. Pray for your preacher before he preaches God's word. Choose to spend time with it when you would normally pursue the things that drag you down to earth. Um, Expect illumination by the Holy Spirit from it. Search it for answers to specific questions, right? Look into it to show us hidden faults. Share it with your families. Cherish it as a book written by God. Change our lives because of it, right? Meditate on the glories that this Word of God, an inspired book, reveals to us. You want to know what God thinks? Read his word. You want to know how to be happy? Read his word. You want to break out of your sins? Read his word. You want to know what will happen after you die? Well, read his word. Do you you want to know about the glories of heaven? Do you think that might encourage you today? Read his word, right? Brothers and sisters, it's all there in the word of God. How could you possibly neglect this? Verse 17, Paul adds another way of helping us set our minds on the things that are above. He writes, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, whatever we say or do should be governed by the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? Whatever we say or do should have Christ's glory in mind. It's obvious that sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness 
and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying can't be done in the name of Christ. What is not so obvious, though, is that changing a diaper and saying a kind word or playing a softball game, right, or writing a report or disciplining our children or, or, you know, vacationing or arguing or running a, a board meeting or speaking to a friend in the narthex before church or loving your spouse or everything said or done is to be done to the glory of Christ alone. Right? A mind fixed on the glories of Christ will at all times exalt in his name and submit to his authority in every mundane moment of the day. Right? So you see, all our earthly activities become heavenly when we acknowledge Christ in all of them and we acknowledge his lordship over every situation. If you're convinced you know him, if you're convinced you know Jesus, and have been raised with Christ, and yet find your mind vacillating between these two worlds, as I believe we will until, until we are with Jesus after death. Take care to do the things that this passage has encouraged us to do. Put to death what is earthly. Put your mind on the heavenly. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and finally do all things, all things great and small, all things mundane and holy, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exhortation from your word that we have received Lord, forgive us for our laziness in pursuing you. Father, to not pursue our sanctification ultimately is not to be enjoying you and growing closer to you. So, Father, forgive us for our cold hearts, for our lukewarmth, for our laziness in the faith. And give us strength, strength, Father, by your Spirit to truly and fully enjoy you and set our minds on the things above and not the things of the earth. Father, forgive us for giving ourselves wholeheartedly to the things that drag us down. I pray that we would give ourselves more fully to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.